You're listening to Season 8 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a weekly podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam, researching its influences, examining its themes, and discussing how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world, from 1979 to today. This is episode 8.8. This message is a warning about danger. And we are your hosts. I'm Tom, longtime Gundam fan, and hey, did you know that this episode confirms the continued existence of the United States of America? It's in the return address on the letter from Sylvia Burning. It's even got a zip code. And I'm Nina, new to Stardust memory, and yes, I did accidentally refer to the Albion as the Argama during the talkback. No, I didn't feel like fixing it after the fact, and I'm sure it won't be the last time. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 733 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks to our newest supporters, the Josen One, James T, and Robert V. You keep us genki. And thanks to Matthew R for getting us an item from our wishlist, a coffee mug warmer. As someone who routinely drinks half a cup of coffee and then forgets the rest exists until lunchtime, I have already gotten a lot of use out of it. As an independent and ad-free podcast, MSB is entirely listener-supported. If you enjoy our Gundam overthinking, support us today by recommending us to your friends, becoming a monthly subscriber, making a one-time payment, or reviewing us wherever you listen to podcasts. Links to all of the different ways to support us are on our website, gundampodcast.com slash support. This week, Stardust Memory Episode 8, Sakubo no Chuiki. Its English title is Conspiracy Sector, and its original English title was Conspiracy of Darkness. It was released on February 20th, 1992. The chief director was Imanishi Takashi, who also wrote the screenplay. The episode's director was Watanabe Shinichiro, with storyboards drawn by former chief director Kase Mitsuko in her final credited contribution to the show. Osaka Hiroshi was the animation director. This episode has a new opening, Men of Destiny, and a new ending song, Evergreen. Both were performed by the pop singer Miku, who was going by Mio at the time. She had previously performed the opening songs for Zabungle, Dunbine, Elgheim, and Area 88. Tanaka Hideyuki joins the voice cast this week, playing Federation Admiral Green Wyatt. He has played a great many roles over the years, but here at MSB we know him best for that time he said, <laughs> Now, the recap. In just a few days, the Federation is conducting its first naval review since the One-Year War, a show of strength in the face of Delaz's threats. On the way there, Keith and Cole continue their training, and seem to improve with every exercise. Lieutenant Burning is proud of their progress, but also preoccupied. It's getting harder and harder to keep up with the young guns, but he's determined to power through. When Captain Synapse catches the lieutenant in the infirmary getting a checkup, he invites Burning to his cabin for a drink ostensibly to get an update on the other pilots, but also to suggest that Burning take some leave after this operation, spend some time with his wife back on Earth. 
Worried that he's being pushed towards retirement, Burning is quick to turn down the offer. He and his wife have been estranged a long time, and in any case, he wants to keep fighting, to end his career with no regrets. After Cole's declaration at the end of the last episode, he and Nina seem happy and comfortable around each other, though Cole complains that Nina acts like an older sister, and she counters that he still acts like a kid, even if he has adopted a new, more adult way of speaking. Later on, Keith visits Cole in his room, bringing with him a stack of photographs Mora found in Moncha's cockpit, all of them of Nina. It's clear that Nina didn't know most of these were being taken, but Keith's only interest is in how sexy they are. When Cole seems outraged, Keith questions his feelings for Nina. After all, if Cole likes her and she likes Cole, why hasn't he made a move? Blushing and muttering about love, Cole changes the subject. Later that day, he picks up several books about women from the ship's library, then heads to the hangar, where a supply ship has arrived with mail for the crew. The scrum of people collecting letters and parcels freezes when the sounds of an argument cut through the other noise. Mora has found out that Keith took the stack of photographs and is chasing him around the hangar. They tumble over catwalks and bounce off of walls in the low gravity, while Mora calls Keith a lech and accuses him of selling the pictures. When she catches him, he confesses to giving all the photographs to Cole, who then becomes the focus of Mora's anger. She lifts him up and shakes him by the collar, certain that he's lying when he says he shredded them all. But when she grabbed him, he dropped his books, and Nina picks them up. Glancing at the titles, she says that he probably did shred the photos, and Mora sets Cole down apologetically. In the midst of the commotion, an alarm called them to alert stations and Lieutenant Burning stalks toward them, angry at the delay. He hits both young men, and they hurry to their posts. An enemy ship has been detected. The enemy ship is, in fact, a whole fleet. Shima is set to have a secret rendezvous with Federation Admiral Green Wyatt and his ship, the Birmingham. Both sides worry about a double cross, and the arrival of the Albion throws a wrench in their plans. Shima, however, waits calmly to see what happens. Wyatt's ship fires on her fleet, disabling one of the other ships, the Nibelung, and Shima smiles to herself. It's just a show. It would look suspicious if they did not attack, but they've done it in a way that will let Shima escape. The Albion and its mobile suits are tasked with covering the Birmingham's retreat and dogfight with the Neozeon mobile suits. Shima herself takes the field. Despite the physical strain, Burning still destroys several enemy mobile suits. Then, while taking cover by the damaged and drifting Nibirlung, he spots the body of a Neozeon officer in the wreckage, with a briefcase handcuffed to its wrist. Suspecting the contents must be important, he retrieves the case and secures it in his own cockpit. Shima, frustrated by Cole's new grasshopper-like agility in dodging her attacks, stops to survey the battlefield and notices burning. Moving swiftly, she reaches him just as his cockpit door closes, and the two fight ferociously until Shima's fleet is safely away, and her mobile suits have to return before the ships are out of range. On the way back to the Albion, Cole apologizes for earlier, and Burning tells him not to worry. Mora told him what happened. Gazing fondly at the photo of his wife that he keeps in his own cockpit, Burning says Cole should have kept at least one of the photos of Nina. He also tells both Cole and Keith that they are ready. They are full-fledged pilots. The only element they're missing is confidence, and it's not something he can teach them. 
Lieutenant Burning then looks over the documents from the briefcase, which contain details of Operation Stardust, the enemy's plans, their deployment, everything. But before he can relay any of the details, tragedy strikes. A seemingly minor hit to the gym custom, sustained during the fight with Shima, causes a catastrophic rupture. The side of the mobile suit bursts open with a cloud of smoke, and the gym is propelled away at terrible speed until neither Cole nor Keith can see it. The radio whines. A bright light blooms in the distance as the gym's reactor explodes. The radio goes silent. So, Nina, at what point in this episode did you know that Burning was going to die? On the first watch through, not until they show us that cutaway of the machinery inside mm-hmm, his mobile suit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Then I'm like, uh, uh oh. <laughs> yeah, you don't show an internal shot of a couple of components doing a repetitive action unless at some point they're going to fail catastrophically. It's the Chekhov's gun of mecha shows. He makes a comment much earlier in the episode that basically uh, is him saying what Kelly said, like, I want to die in harness. (laughs) I want (laughs) to die working. Mm -hmm. And once he says that, it's like, okay, you're not going to survive this series. Mm -hmm. But I didn't necessarily think that meant he would die in this episode. Mm -hmm. Although in some ways, the OVA format, the single release per month, encourages them to introduce and wrap up an arc within that episode. These little mini arcs, uh, it's harder to span them across multiple episodes because people will forget what had happened and there's a lot of space in between. And A person might only be renting, you know, episode nine or something. Yeah, I do want to come back to that issue of introducing storylines and then having to wrap them up in the same episode. But I had the slight advantage of knowing that Burning was going to die in the course of this season. I didn't remember exactly what episode it was going to be in. So, you know, I didn't go into this episode knowing it was going to happen, but they line up such a profusion of death flags for this poor guy. The introduction that he's married, but estranged from his wife, but he still carries around her photo. The emphasis on the physical strain of piloting on him, the couple of scenes where he's starting to red out as they're accelerating. That he goes into the doctor and someone is like, well, you can't really compete with those young guys anymore. This whole scene with the captain. Well, he insists, oh, no, it's just a matter of willpower, even though he's already thought to himself, how much longer can I do this? He practically says, this is going to be my last mission before retirement. I need to gloat a little because I speculated early on that when Burning's old comrades were introduced... When there was all this conflict between Adel and Bate and Monsha and Keith and Cole, that it was about this sometimes buried, sometimes very overt resentment that an older generation has when they start to feel replaced by a younger. Mm-hmm. And what is this whole <laughs> episode about except for Burning really struggling to come to terms with the fact that he has trained up his own replacements? Sure. Well, it's about Cole and Keith on the threshold, on the cusp of adulthood, and whether or not they're going to be able to make that final step 
from boys to men. And he he's proud of them and not shy about expressing how skilled they've gotten, how much better, how they're ready to hold their own, and that the final piece is something internal to them that he can't teach them anyway. And in fact, he can't be there for them to take that final step. Whether that's because they're off on a mission without him or because he's dead, I think it's quite clear he can't hold their hand when they take that final step. They have to do it alone. Which is a very particular idea about what it means to be a man, and this episode is thick with ideas about what it means to be a man. Uh, and this is, I guess, one of the less reprehensible ones on display in the episode, but not a great one. I particularly noticed that when the captain invites him to have a drink, when the captain brings up his wife, at these various other moments, he is terrified that the captain is going to tell him to stand down, mm -hmm. that the captain is going to tell him, I'm relieving you of duty. That's it. Well, it's also the captain inviting him to have a drink together is the captain saying, you and I, we are of a kind. Yeah. We are part of an older generation separated from all these young kids. And that maybe comes as a little bit of a surprise to Burning because Burning is not nearly as old as the captain is. Burning is like 39. I'm sure the captain <laughs> is in his 50s. Um, Burning is an old looking 39. <laughs> space radiation, Australian desert sun. Burning has led a hard life. So what you're really describing here is like, I definitely had this experience as I got older. I'm sure many of our listeners have too. But when suddenly it feels like adults are including you in adult conversations and treating you as an adult rather than as a kid or a youngster, it's like, oh, oh, I'm part of this group now. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And it can be fun and it can be scary. It's being invited to sit at the adults table at Thanksgiving instead of the kids table. Or being included in difficult conversations about family issues mm -hmm. or... You come back from your first semester at college and suddenly your parents are treating you very differently. Your parents offering you a glass of wine with dinner where they didn't before. Mm -hmm. Things like that. And to some degree, if what he wants is to die flying, being treated like an officer or being treated like... An elder. Like, he's, an, he's an elder now. Right. But it's sort of um, like he's afraid of being relegated to management, right? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Let him have one last good flight, and then he'll accept the slow death of management. Old soldiers just fade away, except for the ones that die horribly. <laughs> um, I did feel considerable anger towards him when he hits Ko and Keith. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, they have both missed this alarm. They should already be in their mobile suits. They should already be launched. They have been sloppy. They have made a bad mistake. But the sense, especially given how emotional burning is when he hits them, is that that's not really what he's mad about. He's mad about this feeling of redundancy. <laughs> I disagree. I agreed with you when you first said that when we first watched the episode, but I've been thinking about it a lot since then, and I think something else is going on here. One of the underlying themes of this episode is that burning is like a father to Ko and Keith. And in the visual and narrative language of Gundam, burning, hitting Keith and Ko is an essential part of him being a father figure for them. Which we don't have to agree with. <laughs> we don't. 
But there have been plenty of Gundam shows that have indicated that they consider physical discipline an essential part of raising responsible, good adults. Even my own father never hit me. And it is a scene that shows him treating them like children. Because mm. this episode is very much about Ko and Keith, but especially Ko, being on the cusp between childhood and adulthood, behaving sometimes the way the show thinks a boy behaves, and sometimes the way the show thinks a man is supposed to behave. And interestingly, his reaction to being told off and to being hit is presented as good and manly. <laughs> very few words, no excuses. Sorry, sir, I know we're already supposed to be in our cockpits. Gets hit, doesn't say anything, doesn't even move, almost doesn't react, which I think the show is saying is correct, is what he should do. That he is, and I hate this phrase, taking it like a man. There'll be a lot more to say about Ko's masculinity and becoming a man in this episode, but before we move on from burning, I think the moment when I knew 100% that he was going to die in this episode was when that letter arrived for him from his wife and he didn't collect it. Oh, that's true. I Yeah. Uh, once that happened... Uh, I was like, he's never going to get that letter. There were some strong suspicions. I had forgotten. Yeah. The minute you see that letter, it's like, uh-oh. His estranged wife just wrote to him? Mm. Mm. And then, of course, he makes a shocking discovery and we can only see him being shocked. Neither we, the audience, nor the other characters can see what has shocked him so much. Gosh, that, that really annoyed me. That annoyed <laughs> me so much. Uh, <laughs> I um, I paused it because there's a brief shot where you can see the front page of the thing he's reading before, before it gets covered gets in blood. Uh, and I paused it. And unfortunately, while it's legible English, it looks like they have taken some other document and like modified the language a little bit to fit Operation Stardust. But there's nothing in it that actually reveals what he's been reading. It's just a standard cover sheet. Feels very silly for him to hang around in his... He knows his mobile suit is damaged. Mm -hmm. He knows they need to get back to the Argama. And mm -hmm. he's just hanging around reading these documents going, oh, What? They're going to... Dot, dot, dot. <gasps> it's so shocking. I'm so shocked. I can't even... I'm positive that in real militaries, there are protocols for when you recover enemy documents. I cannot imagine hanging out to read them is part of it. Well, I mean, he is on the way back to the Albion, right? He's not truly hanging out. But um, I've noticed again and again, on the rare occasions when we get to meet older pilots, your Slager Laws, your Appley Bays, your South Burnings, they're always relegated to these mass production models, usually ones that are a little bit out of date. You know, like the aging body of a man in his 30s or 40s. So, burning, going out there in his gym custom, continuing in it even after it's been fatally damaged, though he doesn't know that, is all a piece with the way his body was failing him earlier in the episode. Those readouts needing to go into the doctor to get examined. Oh, there's nothing wrong with you. Not really. Oh, there's nothing wrong with my mobile suit. Not really. But none of us get out of our bodies alive, do we? Arguable. But that's a deep philosophical question that we are not going to address within the scope of this podcast. <laughs> We talk about some deep philosophical things here sometimes, but that one might be a bridge too far. What does it mean to be alive? 
Does any part of ourselves persist after death? Those are some deep, (laughs) deep, deep questions. Yes, but questions that Gundam has a definitive answer to. If you are a tragic new type waif, there is a very good chance that you will be able to continue living after you die. Indeed. People should die when they're killed, though. (laughs) So Burning's storyline about getting older, approaching retirement, and then dying in battle instead is all sort of introduced and wrapped up in this one episode. There hasn't really been any hint of that up until now. Except in the sense that any mentor figure is in danger when their mentees start to approach the point of not needing them anymore. In Gundam! Mentors in Gundam are in danger! But this episode also seeds a lot of story elements that seem like they're going to pay off later. Right off the bat, we have this reference to the Naval Review, which has never been mentioned before in the show, but we are assured has actually been planned well in advance. In a line of dialogue that feels almost preemptively defensive against accusations that they should have been foreshadowing this much earlier, I uh, strongly suspect that they went into making this show with a pretty good idea of how the first half of it was going to play out, and only the sketchiest of plans for the back half. And now that we're getting into the back half, they have come up with a storyline for what's going to happen, and now it's time to start foreshadowing it. So, the naval review... We get this scene of them moving colonies around as part of a restoration plan that has also never been mentioned before. Which provides them with yet another opportunity to emphasize Cole and Keith's uh, earthnoidness, <laughs> that they had no conception of what a space colony looked like, how big it was, what it would feel like to be close to one, even though they've been training in mobile suits for mobile suit combat, which would include fighting in space probably at some point. They are totally aghast at this first nearish exposure to what a colony is like. It's a pretty cool scene. And watching a couple of colonies moving through space like that, it's almost like they had stumbled upon a herd of cattle moving from one pasture to another. One imagines a person seeing perhaps an elephant for the first time, having only heard them described before or seen pictures, and then you're actually standing near one or a skyscraper, or a plane, anything deeply unfamiliar that you have seen pictures of, so you think you know, and then you're actually near it, and it's a totally different experience. They also hint at some kind of truly shocking plan for Operation Stardust. Shima says that whatever's going on, Gato will be the one at risk. We see Shima negotiating with the Federation brass in some sort of underhanded deal. Surely this is not the end of that storyline. I want to interject really quickly before you continue your list of things that are being hinted at, uh, just to talk about how corruption within militaries of all kinds is always going on, but is especially prevalent during peacetime, because there is this sense that if things go missing or if things aren't done the way they really should be, nobody will notice because it's not really an urgent situation. And so there's this whole question of, is this a kind of protection racket? Are they paying Shima so she won't destroy their ships and will only fight other people? Or so she'll avoid particular colonies or particular places? Well, it seems like they were going to buy this information off of her. seems like she was selling the Stardust, the Operation Stardust plans. It's hard for me to imagine she would sell the complete plans, though. And I can also imagine a scenario in which some of the Federation is kind of in on Operation Stardust. 
you know, they think they've come to some kind of arrangement where Neozeon will take the space colonies, but they'll still have Earth and the moon or, you know, they, they might think they're coming to some kind of separate arrangement. And so they're going to let Operation Stardust happen and then they're going to pick up the pieces when it's all over. There's a few different things that could be happening there. Well, the Federation military has almost the same incentive structure that Anaheim does. If there's no threat, why would you need a military? Certainly you wouldn't need a very large one. I mean, this is exactly what we saw happen to the Federation in the 30 years between Shars counterattack and F-91. No serious threats mean the military atrophies away until it's basically useless. Whereas for guys like Inspector General Admiral Green Wyatt, or whatever his rank was, it's nice to have some kind of threat out there lurking in the wilderness. The more ominous, the better, because then the Federation needs to spend a fortune building new warships and mobile suits and keeping its military at a relatively high state of readiness all the time. Synapse looks at the way the Federation is handling this threat, and he's frustrated because it feels as though they're not taking it seriously. Someone else might look at the Federation not taking this seriously, do their own assessment that it is serious, and rather than feel that same frustration as Synapse, decide to try to take advantage of that situation. What else did you think got hinted at? Nina's preoccupation with Gato specifically. I cannot believe she's standing on the bridge, staring wistfully out the window, being like, Gato will not be impressed by this show of strength. And nobody follows up. Nobody asks any questions. I actually have a couple of questions about Nina's situation at this point. Like, what was the fallout of that whole plot line in the prior episode about her maybe leaving her job to move home, but now she's on the Albion? Is she still employed by Anaheim? Is she just telling everyone that she's still employed by Anaheim? Have they not checked? But Anaheim sent her mail. Why would they send her a big old box of mail? Often when you quit your job, they send you whatever was in your desk. Maybe? I'm not saying that's what happened, but like, you know. Or maybe... What, what is going on with Nina? What are the consequences of the prior episode for anybody? What, yeah, the question of what position she holds on the ship. There is a brief moment when Burning hits Keith and Cole where she looks like she's about to intervene and Mora has to stop her. Because Mora actually is a member of the ship's crew officially, has been in the military for a while, knows how this works. And it's like, oh, no, 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 you don't get to <laughs> be part of this. Right. You will make it worse. <laughs> for everybody in every way, if you intervene. Yeah. Um, I mentioned, you know, I think that they came into this with a plan for the first half of the show and then had to work out how the rest of it was going to go. They had the same writer for the first four episodes. Then they had another writer for two episodes. And now they've brought on a third writer. I strongly suspect that uh, after the first writer, Fuyunori, left the show, they kind of had to scramble to figure out what was going to happen next. And so I think those two Endo episodes and then the first of the Imanishi episodes, which was the prior one, were a kind of like holding pattern. The plot moves forward a little bit, the characters move forward a little bit, but mostly nothing really essential happens, and it gives them time to work out what's going to happen next. They become a bottle episode, and those kinds of bottle or island episodes don't have a lot of consequences outside of themselves. We've reached the sort of halfway point in the OVA. New intro, new outro. But I noticed what seemed to me some very stark changes in the animation. 
so wondered about, did a, a different team come on? Did different designers come on? Did they increase the budget substantially based on the sales of the first few episodes? Visually, there are a lot of things about this episode that felt like a break from the previous seven episodes. I did also notice what felt like a stark change in the animation, which was a bit strange because it really is the same team that has been working on this thus far. There's sort of two alternating teams who are working on the animation for this. There's one team that is led by uh, Kawamoto Toshihiro, who is the primary animation director and character designer for the show. Call that Team A. And I don't know if the members of that team are all like proper in-house employees of Sunrise or if they're freelancers who just tend to work together. But I do know that the other team, the one that worked on this episode, let's call them Team B, they're under animation director Osaka Hiroshi, and they're associated with the outsourcing studio Anime R. So it is a different team, but it's not the first episode they've worked on. I suspected that might be the case, which is why I wondered about if their budget had gone up. Mm -hmm. Or if maybe they just had more time to complete this episode than they've had for other episodes, because it feels like there's a lot more effects. There are a lot of effects that go into trying to convey to us the effect of the G-Force on the pilots. Made my last research piece feel very timely. Mm -hmm. <laughs> very exaggerated facial expressions, more detail. The color felt richer to me, although that could just be that the transfer was better <laughs> for this episode. Mm -hmm. And a lot of uh, big, exaggerated movement, a lot of sort of madcap, goofy scenes that involve more motion and more complicated motion than a lot of previous episodes. I'll do some theory crafting here. This is all speculation. But as I mentioned in my introduction, this is the first episode without Kase Mitsuko as chief director, but she's doing the storyboards for this episode. And of course, it's the storyboards that really determine a lot of what you're talking about in terms of the way the episode is put together, a lot of those movements, a lot of that starts at the storyboard level. Those close-ups on facial expressions. Mm -hmm. So I think it's very possible that they had more time to work on this episode, not because the gap between the episodes was any longer, but because... If I'm right that they spent the last couple of months when they were putting out episodes 5, 6, and 7, figuring out what the storyline was going to be for episodes 8 on, then they may have started and finished writing this episode well in advance of when they normally would, which would give more time to do the storyboards. With Kase no longer doing chief director duties, she would have had more time to work on those storyboards, so the storyboards might have gotten finished earlier which could have meant more time to do the animation. Which would all make perfect sense, even if we don't have any sources to back up that speculation. Just to note a couple of my favorite bits, the fight between Keith and Mora in low G, where they go sort of like tumbling <laughs> off of catwalks and flying across the room. So funny. The veritable scrum of people trying to get their mail. Those repeated shots of the machinery inside Burning's Gym Custom. It's so beautifully animated. It's so sharp. And it's shown three times with the third time showing the damage. I did love the way they animated the damage. The way you see the, the sort of internal compartment of the gym first bulge as the internal explosions push the armor outward. And then the burst sending it careening off to one side. I thought that was a great demonstration of uh, an understanding of the way this sort of thing would work in Zero-G. 
And one thing we've mentioned before about this series that they handle in a way that I really like is this contrast between the up-close and personal gruesomeness and the gruesomeness at a distance. So there's the shot of Burning's blood splattering against this paperwork, and that's awful. It's horrible. But then when the explosion sends his mobile suit far away, we don't see the mobile suit blow up. We don't even hear him. Mm -hmm. The radio crackles. It makes noises. But there's no sense of a person on the other end of it. And then it goes silent. And all we see is, you know, a circle of expanding light and twinkly bits Mm -hmm. that tell us that there's been an explosion of the reactor that powers the gym. Was also very impressed with how grotesque they managed to make that floating in space corpse. The one with the suitcase handcuffed to its wrist. The limp, lifeless, doll-like quality of it while it's still being very clearly a person. Really, really well animated. (laughs) I loved the sequence of burning, retrieving the briefcase, going back into his cockpit. You see from his perspective the view through the open cockpit door. Oh, yeah, that was so good. And then, you know, it's all clear space. And then it closes. And as it closes, there's a moment when you can't see anything. And it takes a little while for the cameras to come online. It's like a horror movie. Because you, the audience, know that you're about to see something and he's about to see something and it's going to be bad. Something's coming. And then the cameras come on and bam, Shima. Shima time. Not related to any other notes I have about this episode, but I would like to point out that the ship in Shima's fleet that gets destroyed is the Nibirlung. Nibirlung or Nibelung is a surname, clan name. It comes up in Old Norse mythology. It comes up in a lot of Germanic mythology. In some of that, it means dwarf. It's a big part of the ring cycle of operas, which is probably what they're really referring to because Nazis heckin' loved Wagner. The ring cycle is a series of four operas meant to be shown in sequence that is this massively epic story that involves a magic ring and dwarves and... I don't even know what else. I've never seen it. For more information about the Ring Cycle and the Nibelung and Xeon ships named after it, listen to Mobile Suit Breakdown episode 5.7. Oh, wait, that's right. You talked about the Ring Cycle at one point, didn't you? I did. <laughs> I had completely <Because> forgotten. <laughs> one of the Xeon warships that shows up in 0080 is called the Siegfried. Not exactly being subtle about this, are they? No. No, they are not. Like we were talking about with all of the different death flags that they raised up for burning in this episode, subtlety is not what they're going for. I think it might finally be time for us to move on to uh, what this episode has to say about men and women and how men relate to women. A line popped into my head for one of my favorite movies while I was watching this. It's from Moonstruck. And one of the older women characters says, what you don't know about women is a lot. <laughs> yeah. This is all tied in with Ko's transition into adulthood storyline. So I think we have to talk about that too. Yeah, I um I feel the need to first express very clearly that a lot of what these men are saying is awful 
taking photos of a woman when she doesn't know that you're taking pictures of her and clearly doesn't want you to take pictures of her and then keeping those is a creepy thing to do. Absolutely. However, there is a, a kernel to what a bunch of people are saying to him that I think is valid. <laughs> well, so let's break this down. Ko becoming a man is telegraphed right off the bat at the beginning of the episode when he gets out of the Gundam and he starts talking to Nina and he says, my Gundam. He uses the personal pronoun ore. And in fact, Nina calls this out in the Japanese dialogue. She mentions that he's been saying boku until now. Without going too deep into the weeds of Japanese personal pronouns, of which there are a vast number and which are very complex in how they're used, ore and boku are both masculine pronouns, but they're not exclusively used by men and boys. In this specific context, what you need to know about them is that boku tends to be used by boys. Ore tends to be used by teenagers, young men. It has an almost sort of aggressive connotation. It's rougher. And it's a little impolite. It's the sort of thing you might grow into and grow out of. It's funny because in English, her reaction reads a little more as surprise that he's using the personal possessive about the Gundam. My Gundam. And that's what he responds to. He's like, no, no, you're right. Our Gundam. <laughs> and then goes back to my Gundam by the end of it. But uh, after the end of the previous episode, when he comes in from training and he's finished filling out forms for Mora and we hear Nina call his name from off screen, what I expect is an embrace not a, like, complicated friend's handshake, <laughs> which is certainly more appropriate to this situation, but begins to convey that their relationship is caught in this very friendly pattern. He says she acts like an older sister. Uh, she teases him about the carrots again. He entirely misses the point and thinks that it's really about the carrots. <laughs> and she so clearly likes to see him being cocky and assertive. She likes the version of Ko who says, Ore no Gandame. And I think very clearly still likes him. But what we've learned from these prior episodes is that even if they are stuck in a holding pattern of friendship, and even if she does like him and want it to be something more, she is never going to take that step. Because right. she really, really, really needs him to do it. She wants him to do it. When Mora finally catches Keith and is very angry with him for taking the photos, she says he clearly doesn't understand women. But I think Nina and Mora differ somewhat on what it is they want from men. I'm reminded of that shower conversation again. One of the things Mora thinks is great about Cole is that while all these other men act like starving wolves, the implication being that women are prey, Cole doesn't, and Mora thinks that's great. Nina blushes, and part of that is, I imagine, embarrassment about how Monsha's been acting. But Nina would like to see a little bit of that starving wolf energy <laughs> from Cole, please. Nina does not seem mad at all by the prospect of Ko having those photos, and in fact, she seems a bit disappointed to learn that he has destroyed them. I think Nina, along with Keith, Burning, and Moncha, all look down on Ko for doing the right thing. If I were Ko, and I'm not, but bear with me, if I were, I would probably play the photo thing as like, oh, I destroyed them because clearly they were taken without your permission, but 
can I take a photo of you sometime to keep with me when I'm piloting? Like, spin it into a reason to take a new photo with permission. You're way too charming to be cool. I know. I'm sorry. But so here's the thing, right? Back to that idea of transitioning from childhood to adulthood. So far, the way that Cole has engaged with Nina has been completely chaste, hence older sister, younger brother vibes or good friends. And if Nina were okay with chaste, sexless, being adored, that would be fine. But she's not. That's not the kind of relationship she wants from him. Well, it's presented as childish. The interaction with the photos, Mora is like, I can't believe that any man would destroy those photos. I can't believe it. And Nina picking up the books that Ko has been studying. But you see, Mora, he's only a boy. I, <laughs> does he not, does Ko not know the mechanics of sex? Ko is accustomed to learning things out of textbooks. Because, uh, <laughs> wow, apparently sex ed in the universal century is atrocious. Uh, But, you know, what can you expect? All the astronauts come from Ohio. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) You can't make that joke. Only I'm allowed to make that joke. I had to endure sex ed in Ohio. But she's right, though. It was atrocious. I probably would have been better off with a book called The Secret of Women's Bodies. And to frame the attitude from the women a bit differently, uh, there's been a lot of discussion, I feel like, especially in the past... 10 to 15 years about what is presented as romantic or seductive in media and how that shapes what we think of as correct behavior in romantic situations and what we think of as romantic and seductive. And so if you grow up being told that even unwanted sexual attention from men is actually a good thing and a demonstration of how much they like you, then A man not showing any means he must not like you that much. The discussion between Keith and Cole and Burning at the end, when they're like, oh, you should have kept one photo. Even if you were going to destroy the rest, you should have kept at least one. Burning is looking at that photo of his wife, right? And they're estranged, but he still has these fond memories of her. He still has that there. This comment from Burning, to me, felt like circling back around to the question of, what are you fighting for? And that if Cole really does have these feelings for Nina, having this reminder of her, this reminder of why he's fighting with him is important. Keith is being a creep, though. In one way, Keith has, in fact, been very consistent, which is that his constant refrain to Cole is, make a move, do something. Take the lead. This beautiful woman likes you somehow. (laughs) (laughs) You dumb idiot. You've tripped backwards into a great thing. The tone of Keith's questions to Cole is almost like, are you physically attracted to her at all? (laughs) The message in this episode from Keith and from some of the other characters seems to be that that what Moncha does is wrong because Moncha is ignoring the objections of a woman who is actually not interested in him. But it would be okay for Cole to do it because Nina wants him to. This is another one of those terrible precedents If women are taught that they're supposed to play hard to get, and men are taught that women will play hard to get, then how on earth is anyone meant to convey or distinguish between playing hard to get and an actual no? You can see how this creates problems. (laughs) Especially for somebody like Ko, 
who cannot read the room. It's his most uh, consistent and distinguishing character trait. I also want to talk about the way the Federation admirals talk about yes, Shima. Yes, Because it, it ties into all of this. For them, they are constantly talking about this meeting with Shima, this business negotiation between with their, officers in a war. With their enemy, who has an entire fleet at her disposal. They talk about it within the terms of romance. And the idea they're getting across is that men and women cannot have any interactions that are not tinged by sex and romance. I felt it had more to do with, again, the Federation not taking Neozeon seriously, that they're about to have this meeting with someone who is a very good pilot in her own right, extremely powerful within her military. They're doing something very dangerous and very illegal, and yet they're cracking jokes about oh, I thought it was women who were supposed to keep men waiting, and oh, women love presents. Like, they do not take her seriously. But why don't they take her seriously? Because she's a woman. And they view all women and all interactions with women through the lens of romantic tropes. You know, now that he's not the main focus of any of these episodes, Moncha has definitely graduated from obnoxious to fun to hate. When Moncha is like, in the background. Oh, when... trying to sneak away. Like, <laughs> sneak, oh. Sneak, sneak, sneak. They found my photo stash. <laughs> Better get out of here before I get in trouble. And he is it's so... It's so genuinely affecting to see him crying. I know. he. It's the first time we've seen him like that and creates this image of a person who is always over the top, always feeling things very intensely, whether that's very strong attraction to someone, very angry, very boastful, or very sad. Yeah, he's just a raw nerve, and anything will set him off. And he really did love his friend Burning. And finally, we do have a new opening and ending for this episode. I want to table discussion of them until a later episode because I feel like we need to spend some more time with them. But, Nina, you got your wish. Like Middle-earth in the Fourth Age or Prydain after the Sons of Dawn go west, there is no more magic in the world. The merest mention of magic gets the song stuck in my head, so don't worry, you can still torment me with it. And now, Tom's research on personal pronouns in Japanese. During the talkback, I mentioned that Ko's evolving self-identity gets expressed through his choice of personal pronoun, and kind of hinted at how complex this class of pronouns can be in Japanese. Now I'd like to go into a bit more detail on that. Linguists consider Japanese pronouns highly unusual compared to their equivalents in the Indo-European languages. Some have gone as far as arguing that they really shouldn't be called pronouns at all. In English, there's really only one first-person singular pronoun which changes form depending on its grammatical role in the sentence. I, if I am the subject, me, when the object of the sentence is me, my or mine, when it's my own possession, and myself, when I'm the subject, the object is also me, and thus I've done something to myself. I and we are always appropriate, regardless of your age, gender, class, or the circumstances of the conversation. I'm always me, and so are you, and together we're we. 
Monarchs have a special pronoun to indicate their elevated position, but it's still just we, us, our. Any two or more people together can use the same one. Even when we talk outside of ourselves, we still use these basic pronouns, my company, our nation. The only circumstantial exception I can think of is that in a demonstration of the most extreme humility, a person might elect to use no personal pronoun at all in order to indicate their total abnegation of self. For example, this lowly and reviled worm humbly begs your majesty's pardon. In English, we use these first-person pronouns all the time. I've used I, my, me, mine, or myself around 15 times so far in this research piece alone. In Japanese, though, they occur in speech far less often. Once you start paying attention to the pronouns characters use for themselves, one of the first things that you'll notice is how rarely they use any. One linguist called this, quote, a definite tendency to avoid their use as often as possible, and to carry on conversation using some other words to designate speaker and addressee. Japanese first-person pronoun options are far more varied, and the choice of which to use depends on an array of socio-cultural factors, depending on your own identity, personality, age, dialect, region of origin, profession, sexuality, and emotional state, your relationship to your audience, and the circumstances of the conversation, including the level of formality, you might choose to call yourself Watashi, Watakushi, Watakushime, Atashi, Atakushi, Watai, Wate, Wai, Atai, Ate, Wachi, Ashi, Washi, Boku, Ore, Uchi, Jibun, Ono, Onore, Oira, Oresama, Sesha, Ware, Wagahai, Waga, Wa, Kochitomo, Chin, Daiko, Soregasi, or Warawa. That is by no means an exhaustive list, and the choices are not static either. As with all things in language, meaning shifts over time. Atashi has distinctly feminine connotations today, but in the Edo period it was used by male members of certain low-ranking social classes. New pronouns can be introduced, and obscure ones can enjoy a sudden vogue, like uchi. Taken from the word for inside, and mostly used by young women, it had been associated with the Kansai region specifically, but has since expanded to become one of the most popular for casual use. The plethora of different choices, each with their own slightly different connotations about the speaker, has given birth to interesting practices in media. Romance games with large casts may assign each character a different personal pronoun, both to aid in distinguishing who is speaking a particular line of dialogue, but also as a shortcut to characterization. In life, though, people's pronoun use is not static. Different words fit different situations. Like a woman who explained to a linguistics researcher that she uses atashi in the workplace, but deploys the more strident boku whenever she needs to stand up for herself against her boss. The best known standard personal pronouns, the textbook versions as taught in introductory Japanese, are watashi and boku. Watashi is as close to a standard default term as you're going to find. It's like the polo shirt of personal pronouns. Appropriate for most people, in most situations, but rarely the best fit. In casual use, watashi can have mildly feminine connotations. It's Nina Purpleton's default. In formal situations, it becomes functionally gender neutral, and is the pronoun of choice for both Captain Synapse and Admiral Wyatt when dealing with their subordinates. 
Interestingly, but unsurprisingly, the slick, slightly dandified ever-formal Gato uses Watashi as well. Watakushi is a more polite version of Watashi, used for political speeches, press conferences, business negotiations, and similar highly formal situations. Soregasi and Warawa are similarly polite but archaic. Then there's Atashi, a more feminine variant of Watashi. You might think that the more specific term would be used less often than the more generic one, but in a 2003 analysis of recorded audio from spontaneous conversations, linguists found that Atashi was actually used more often than any other first-person pronoun, about four times as often as Watashi. Later studies in 2008 and 2009, focusing on younger speakers, found that Atashi had lost ground against Uchi, but remained more popular than Watashi except in formal situations. Mora doesn't talk about herself very much, but when she talks to Keith in episode 1, she calls herself Atashi. Atashi also has its slangy casual variant, Atai, as well as a more formal counterpart, Atakshi. Boku, like Atashi, is somewhat less formal than Watashi and comes with distinctly masculine inflection. It's favored by younger men, boys really, and by adult men who prefer to sound polite, modest, and urbane. Boys in elementary school favor Boku when talking in class, while elementary school girls default to Watashi. Boku is taught as the male default, generic and broadly applicable, humble and polite, but never excessively so. If you're a man and you don't know what else to use, you're fairly safe using Boku. But it is also used by women, and in that case it comes with distinct implications of nonconformity, tomboyishness, feminism, and gender transgression. Women who use Boku, especially fictional women, may be called Bokuko, i.e. Boku girls, or the less common variants Boku Shoujo, Boku Young Woman, or Boku Ona, Boku Woman. In fiction, the Bokuko is said to have been inspired by the famous Takarazuka Review, theater troupes who put on elaborate and romantic stage productions in which all the roles are played by women. In history, the originator of the term Bokuko is said to have been a Qing Dynasty noble, born in 1907, who was adopted by the Japanese spy and adventurer Kawashima Naniwa after the overthrow of the Qing Dynasty in 1912 and was then given the name Kawashima Yoshiko. In 1925, at age 18, and having recently recovered from a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the chest that may or may not be related to this next bit, the newspapers at the time certainly thought that there was a connection, Kawashima organized a photo shoot while dressed in traditional feminine kimono attire, then went to a barber shop for a buzz cut, took the male name Ryosuke, and began wearing men's clothing. From that point forward, Kawashima continually shifted, fluidly and freely, between masculine and feminine gender presentations, according to the needs of the moment. Kawashima explained later, I decided to cease being a woman forever, adding, I was born with what the doctors call a tendency toward the third sex, and so I cannot pursue an ordinary woman's goals in life. People criticize me and say that I am perverted, and maybe they're right. I just can't behave like an ordinary feminine woman. Since I was young, I've been dying to do the things that boys do. In fact, ever since childhood, Kawashima had spoken Japanese in a rough, masculine way, not relenting even after getting kicked out of school over it. 
well, partly over it. The young Kawashima used to ride a horse to class every morning, and apparently said horse had been fomenting chaos at the school. <laughs> Despite all of this, the mass media consistently characterized Kawashima as Danso no Regen, a beauty disguised in men's clothing. Kawashima's own self-identification seems to have been fluid, at times embracing and at times rejecting womanhood. All of this created a minor social phenomenon, and many at the time blamed Kawashima for inspiring young women to abandon traditional femininity by cutting their hair short, wearing transgressive clothing, and of course, using the pronoun boku. This is said to be the origin of the boku-ko as a type. Although others have pointed out that the phenomenon of the moga, or modern girl, young women of the late 19-teens and 20s who cut their hair short and dressed in Western-style clothing, as part of a broad rejection of traditional Japanese patriarchy, did rather predate Kawashima's dramatic debut. There was also a bit of this during the Meiji period with women and girls who were pursuing more advanced educational opportunities. Many of them would wear more masculine clothing and cut their hair shorter, uh, more in a nod towards practicality and that they wanted to be spending their time out and about and in school rather than getting their hair done or <laughs> restricted by their clothing in any way. So despite being widely credited as the originator of the term and the type, I think it's very likely that Kawashima was merely the most sensational and famous example at the time. Now this piece is about pronouns, but you know I can't just end the story right here at the beginning of Kawashima's life, can I? Rich, famous, nobly born, and sensational by temperament, Kawashima married and then divorced the son of a Mongolian prince, took male and female lovers, helped convince the last Qing emperor, Puyi, to accept the throne of Manchukuo as a Japanese puppet, and then personally smuggled his wife, the Empress Wanrong, and her beloved pet dog out of China in the trunk of a car. Kawashima, sometimes going by the Chinese name Jin Bihui, recruited local spies for Japanese military intelligence, and at one point even established an independent cavalry army of some 3,000 or more ex-bandits, and personally led them against anti-Japanese guerrilla rebels in Manchukuo. Throughout the early 1930s, Kawashima became a kind of semi-mythic figure, the hero of pulpy adventure fiction and greatly exaggerated newspaper reports, and, in a Macross kind of twist, a radio performer and record artist. But this is not a James Bond movie, and no one who becomes that famous can continue working as a spy. It would have been convenient for the Japanese Empire if they could turn that burgeoning fame into propaganda in support of their activities in occupied Manchukuo. But inconveniently, all of that time traveling around and fighting rebels had taught Kawashima a lot about the state of things there and the nature of the Japanese occupation. The impression turns out to have been a bad one. More and more, Kawashima started to speak out against the empire's multitude of abuses. At which point it turned out that all of that flattering media attention and government support was conditioned on towing the party line. Kawashima appeared less and less in the public eye, 
In August 1933, in the city of Matsumoto, Kawashima attempted to give a public speech, but upon arriving, found the military police waiting with a gag order. The hall was packed, the crowd expectant, and eventually the police backed down, only for their fears to be realized immediately when Kawashima, dressed in the typical black robe and cap of a Chinese man, ascended the podium and gave an impassioned speech calling for peace and the unity of all people. Four years later, on the eve of the Second Sino-Japanese War, Kawashima, now badly diminished due to what many suspect was addiction to opium and other painkillers administered to treat the lingering pain from multiple gunshot wounds, returned to the podium to denounce Japan's ambitions on the mainland, saying, Japanese from the foreign ministry, the military, the privileged, and the capitalists talk about Sino-Japanese friendship every time they open their mouths. But the Sino-Japanese friendship they're talking about is only a Sino-Japanese friendship that profits the Japanese. Despite this, when the war actually started, an old lover set Kawashima up to run a restaurant in occupied Tianjin. It became a popular haunt for Japanese soldiers. But the adventure ended after the anti-Japanese resistance attacked one of Kawashima's friends, seriously wounding the socialite-turned-spy-turned-warlord-turned-celebrity-turned-restaurateur in the process. By 1945, distrusted by the Chinese and Japanese governments alike, friendless and in terminal physical decline, Kawashima settled down in Beijing and waited for the end of the war and Japan's by then inevitable defeat. Arrested two months after Japan's surrender, tried and convicted as a traitor to China in 1947, the 40-year-old Kawashima was executed on March 25th, 1948. Anyway, we were talking about pronouns. <laughs> ore, the pronoun Ko starts using in this episode, is a rougher, more energetic, some might say manlier, virile, or even vulgar way of identifying yourself. It's got connotations of arrogance and coolness. It emphasizes one's own status vis-a-vis -vis the listener. It's used commonly when speaking to peers or those with lower status, but almost never when speaking to someone above you. A person might therefore call themselves ore when talking to friends or family, but drop down to boku in the classroom, and watashi when speaking directly to the teacher. Ore has its variants, oi in Kyushu, oira in the countryside, and ora or ura in rural parts of the north. You could also call yourself ore-sama if you wanted to sound like a caricature of masculine arrogance. Like boku, ore can be used by women. It's more common in certain regions, among certain generations of older women, and in specific social contexts. Junior high girls have been noted to use it, as have farm women in rural Japan, while one researcher at a lesbian bar in the early 2000s reported that ore, along with watashi, atashi, washi, and jibun, were all in frequent use there. In one interaction at that same lesbian bar, the speaker started out using the more neutral jibun, saying that she didn't like to sound too feminine by using watashi or atashi, but also did not want to use a masculine one like washi. Yet when she started to get more animated and indeed angry at another customer, she naturally slipped into calling herself ore. Jibun, which I just mentioned, adds an interesting wrinkle to this episode, because before Ko surprises Nina with his ore, he calls himself jibun while speaking to Lieutenant Burning. Jibun is a very neutral term, more or less meaning oneself. In the 90s, it was considered somewhat old-fashioned, but was still in regular use within certain male-dominated groups, sports teams, police forces, and the army. 
which is probably why, even with his newfound confidence, Ko naturally defaults to Jibun when speaking to his commander. Jibun may have seemed old-fashioned in the 90s, but it seems to have experienced a resurgence in the 2000s, because by 2009, it was registering on surveys as one of the most popular choices for both men and women, in formal and semi-formal situations. The episode opens by audaciously calling our attention to the interplay between Ko's pronoun choice and his evolving identity, as he takes the first faltering steps into manhood. But Ko is not the only character in this episode on the cusp of a major identity shift. Before his death in battle, Lieutenant South Burning was reaching the end of his time as a pilot. No amount of stubbornness can prevent the last bloom of youth from fading into middle age. The invitation from Captain Synapse to have a private drink together catches Burning off guard. It leaves him flattered, but not entirely pleased. He does not want to be one of the old men, talking fondly about how the kids are doing out there. He doesn't want the desk job at the academy, the nine-to-five, the wife waiting at home, the gold watch, the pension. The annual raising of the glass in remembrance of Kirks and Allen and every other departed comrade. He does not want to drop his ore and start calling himself Watashi, the way the older men in the show do. In episode 2, when Lieutenant Allen dies in combat, Burning says to himself, it looks like you beat us all back to base. For him, dying and leaving the battlefield might as well be the same thing. The saying, old soldiers never die, they just fade away, was made famous in the US by General Douglas MacArthur in his farewell address. But the line itself was a quote taken from an old British marching song, popular during the First World War, and set to the tune of the hymn, Kind Words Can Never Die. It is a melancholy idea. War makes people into soldiers by necessity, but soldiers who outlive their wars all too often find themselves ill-suited to any other kind of peacetime life. They disappear little by little, finally passing on in such obscurity that no one even notices. W83 is obsessed with old soldiers who refuse to fade away. The Gatos, the Delazas, the men of Kimberide Base, the Kelly Lasners. Men who burn and howl in the wilderness against the horror of obscurity. Old soldiers never die, but young ones do. Young soldiers die all the time. And Lieutenant South Burning refused to grow old. Next time on episode 8.9, we considered ourselves to be a powerful culture. We research and discuss Gundam 0083 Stardust Memory, episode 9, and 
Space Candy. The Blue Marble. Solomon, I have returned. Spooky Rainbow. I'm having that nightmare again. Her! War is hell, and it smells even worse. Roast Duck. An arrow cannot be fired a second time. That's a lot of gems. The Looming Future. Is this the episode where Keith dies? And make peace with your ghosts. The danger is still present in your time as it was in ours. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music for this season is 80s synth rock guitar improvisation by Zombiefish. The music used in the farewell to Lieutenant Burning was Adrift Among Infinite Stars by Scott Buckley. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at GundamPodcast, or by email to hosts at GundamPodcast.com. And thank you for listening. The wrong Gundam opinion this week comes from F.S. Scott, who says that while some would have you believe that the whole cast of 0083 has been chasing after Gato in order to retrieve the GPO-2 and the stolen nuclear weapon, it is in fact the case that Ko just wants 10 XP and 15 silver points. I'm informed that's a Chrono Trigger reference, I never played it. For example, realism is when you have to fill out a little form after your fun Gundam flight. I wish I could do that. It's nice to have a special skill. <laughs> Garbage collection. Um, I don't even know if we're picking it up, but it's very distracting. Yeah. Is the problem. Yeah. Um, My subtitle in this section of my notes is plots, 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 plots. plots. <laughs> it's the jam of the summer. Like a break from the previous seven episodes. Six? What are we on? This is eight. This is eight. Previous seven episodes. That's fair, I guess. I know people who use subtlety and they're all cowards. <laughs> Overwhelmingly horny. Do you want... 
We can cut that. We will. <laughs>All right, so what is your take on that pan of burning shirtless? Beefcake or male power fantasy? Por que no los dos? It's not much of a butt, though. He's got that 90s butt. <laughs>